0: Book 2, Chapter 7 of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book 2, The Art Critic. 1842-1860 1842-1860 to 1860. Chapter 7 The Working Men's College 1854-1855 to 1855. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith Philanthropic instincts and a growing sense of the necessity for social reform had led Ruskin for some years past towards a group of liberal thinkers with whom he had little otherwise in common. At Venice in 1852 he had written several articles on education taxation and so forth with which he intended to plunge into active politics his father like a cautious man of business who knew his son's powers and thought he knew their limitations was strongly opposed to this attempt and used every argument against it he appealed to his son's sensitiveness and assured him that he would be flayed unless he wrapped himself in the hide of a rhinoceros he assured him that, without being on the spot to follow the discussions of politicians, it was useless to offer them any opinions whatsoever. And he ended by declaring that it would be the ruin of his business and of his peace of mind if the name of Ruskin were mixed up with radical electioneering. Not that he was unwilling to suffer martyrdom for a cause in which he believed, but he did not believe in the movements afoot, neither the Taylors' Co-operative Society. In which their friend f j furnival was interested nor in any outcome of chartism or chartist principles and so for a time the matter dropped in eighteen fifty four the reverend f d morris found the working men's college mr furnival sent the circulars to john ruskin who thereupon wrote to maurice and offered his services At the opening lecture on October 31st, 1854, at St. Martin's Hall, Longacre, Furnival distributed to all comers a reprint of the chapter on the nature of Gothic, which we have already noticed as a statement of the conclusions drawn from the study of art respecting the conditions under which the life of the workman should be regulated. Ruskin thus appeared as contributing, so to say, the manifesto of the movement. He took charge from the commencement of the drawing classes, first at 31 Red Lion Square and afterwards at Great Ormond Street. Also superintending classes taught by Messrs Jeffrey and E. Cook at the Working Women's, afterwards the Working Men and Women's College, Queen Square. In his labour he had two allies, one a friend of Maurice's, Lois Dickinson, the well-known artist whose portrait of Maurice was mentioned with honour in the notes on the Academy. His portrait of Kingsley hangs in the hall of the novelist Professor's College at Cambridge. The other helper was New Friend. To people who know him only as the elegant theorist of art, sentimental and egotistic, as they will have it, there must be something strange, almost irreconcilable in his devotion, week after week and year after year to these night classes still more must it astonish them to find the mystic author of the blessed damoiselle the passionate painter of the venus verticordia working by ruskin's side in this rough navvy labour of philanthropy it was early in eighteen fifty four that a drawing of d g rossetti was sent to ruskin by a friend of the painter's The critic already knew Millet and Hunt personally, but not Rossetti. He wrote kindly, signing himself "Yours respectfully," which amused the young painter. He made acquaintance, and in the appendix to his Edinburgh lectures, placed Rossetti's name with those of Millet and Hunt, especially praising their imaginative power as rivaling that of the greatest of the old masters. He did more than this; he agreed to buy up to a certain sum every year, any drawings that Rossetti brought him, at their market price. And his standard of money value for works of art has never been niggardly. This sort of help, the encouragement to work, is exactly what makes progress possible to a young and independent artist. It is better for him than fortuitous exhibition triumphs, much better than the hack work which many have to undertake to eke out their livelihood and the mere fact of being bought by the eminent art critic was enough to encourage other patrons. "'He seems in a mood to make my fortune,' said Rossetti in the spring of 1854 and early. In 1855, Ruskin wrote, "'It seems to me that, of all the painters I know, "'you on the whole have the greatest genius, "'and you appear to me also to be, as far as I can make out, "'a very good sort of person.' I see that you are unhappy and that you can't bring out your genius as you should. It seems to me, then, the proper and necessary thing, if I can, to make you more happy. And that I shall be more really useful in enabling you to paint properly and keep your room in order than in any other way. He did his best to keep that room in order in every sense. Anxious to promote the painter's marriage with Miss Sidal, Princess Ida, as Ruskin called her, He offered a similar arrangement to that which he had made with Rossetti, and began in 1855 to give her £150 a year in exchange for drawings up to that value. Rossetti's poems also found a warm admirer and advocate. In 1856, The Burden of Nineveh was published anonymously in the Oxford and Cambridge magazine. Ruskin wrote to Rossetti that it was glorious, and that he wanted to know who was the author perhaps not without a suspicion that he was addressing the man who could tell. In 1861 he guaranteed, or advanced, the cost of the early Italian poets up to £100 with Smith and Elder and endeavoured, but unsuccessfully, to induce Thackeray to find a place for other poems in the Cornhill magazine. Mr W. M. Rossetti, in his book on his brother as designer and writer and in his family letters draws a pleasant picture of the intimacy between the artist and the critic at one time he says i am sure they even loved one another but in eighteen sixty five rossetti never very tolerant of criticism and patronage took in bad part his friend's remonstrances about the details of venus verticordia eighteen months later Ruskin tried to renew the old acquaintance. Rossetti did not return his call. And further efforts on Ruskin's part, up to 1870, met with little response. But the lecture on Rossetti in The Art of England shows that on one side at least, their parting, as Mr W. M. Rossetti says, was not in anger, and the portrait of 1861, now in the Oxford University Galleries, will remain as a memorial of the ten years' friendship of the two famous men. At Red Lion Square, during Lent term, 1855, the three teachers worked together every Thursday evening. With the beginning of the third term, March the 29th, the increase of the class made it more convenient to divide their forces. Rossetti, thenceforward, taught the figure on another night of the week while the elementary and landscape class continued to meet on Thursdays under Ruskin and Lois Dickinson. In 1856, the elementary and landscape class was further divided, Mr Dickinson taking Tuesday evenings and Ruskin continuing the Thursday class, with the help of William Ward as undermaster. Later on, G. Allen, J. Bunny, and W. Jeffrey were teachers. Burne Jones, met in 1856 at Rossetti's studio, was also pressed into the service for a time. There were four terms in the working men's college year, the only vacation, except for the fortnight at Christmas, being from the beginning of August to the end of October. Ruskin did not always attend throughout the summer term, though sometimes his class came down to him into the country to sketch. He kept up the work without other intermission until May 1858, after which the completion of modern painters and many lecture engagements took him away for a time. In the spring of 1860 he was back at his old post for a term, but after that he discontinued regular attendance and went to the working men's college only at intervals to give addresses or informal lectures to students and friends. On such occasions, the drawing room, or first floor of the house in which the college was held, would be always crowded, with an audience who heard the lecturer at his best, speaking freely among friends, out of a full treasure house, things old and new, accounts of recent travel, lately discovered glories of art, and the growing burden of the prophecy that in those years was beginning to take more definite shape in his mind. As a teacher, Ruskin spared no pains to make the work interesting. He provided, Mr E. Cook informs me that he was the first to provide, casts from natural leaves and fruit in place of the ordinary conventional ornament. And he set a tree to be fixed in a corner of the classroom for light and shade studies. Mr W. Ward, in the preface to the volume of letters already quoted, says that he used to bring his minerals and shells and rare engravings and drawings to show them his delightful way of talking about these things afforded us most valuable lessons to give an example he one evening took for his subject a cap and with pen and ink showed us how rembrandt would have etched and albert durer engraved it this at once explained to us the different ideas and methods of the two masters On another evening he would take a subject from Turner's Liber Studiorum and with a large sheet of paper and some charcoal gradually block in the subject, explaining at the same time the value and effect of the lines and masses. And for sketching from nature he would take his class out into the country and wind up with tea and talk. It was a treat to hear and see him with his men, writes Dr. Furnival. His object in the work as he said before the Royal Commission on National Institutions, was not to make artists, but to make the workmen better men, to develop their powers and feelings, to educate them in short. He always has urged young people intending to study art as a profession to enter the academy schools, as Turner and the Pre-Raphaelites did, or to take up whatever other serious course of practical discipline was open to them. But he held very strongly that everybody could learn drawing, that their eyes could be brightened and their hands steadied, and that they could be taught to appreciate the great works of nature and of art without wanting to make pictures or to exhibit and sell them. It was with this intention that he wrote The Elements of Drawing in 1856, supplemented by The Elements of Perspective in 1859. The illustrations for the book were characteristic sketches by the author, beautifully cut by his pupil, W. H. Hooper, who was one of a band of engravers and copyists formed by these classes at the Working Men's College. In spite of the intention not to make artists by his teaching, Ruskin could not prevent some of his pupils from taking up art as a profession, and those who did so became, in their way, first-rate men. George Allen as a mezzotint engraver, Arthur Burgess as a draftsman and woodcutter, John Bunny as a painter of architectural detail, W. Jeffrey as an artistic photographer, E. Cook as a teacher, William Ward as a facsimile copyist, have all done work whose value deserves acknowledgement, all the more because it was not aimed at popular effect, but at the severe standard of the greater schools but these men were only the side issue of the working men's college enterprise, its real result was in the proof that the labouring classes could be interested in art, and that the capacity shown by the Gothic workmen had not entirely died out of the nation, in spite of the interregnum, for a full century of manufacture. And the experience led Ruskin forward to wider views on the nature of the arts, and on the duties of philanthropic effort and social economy. End of book two, chapter seven, recording by Graham Arrowsmith.